Hope you brought your Bible with you this morning and would invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel. And that will be John chapter 1. And believe it or not, it has been almost a month since we studied the Gospel of John together. That would have been on December the 2nd, uh, the last time that we uh, studied in our current series through the Gospel of John. And the hard part about that is, it's hard to remember back that far. It's, it's, it'd be bad enough if I caught you in the grocery store tomorrow and asked you about today. But to ask you about December the 2nd, I have to do some uh, review. And if you recall, back at the beginning of December, we began studying the paragraph from verse 35 through 42. We pick up in verse 43 of chapter 1 today. And what we discussed then was what John chose to give us as the first words of Christ's public ministry. And we have record of other things that he said chronologically before that. But we've been discussing for weeks and weeks how John's gospel is so different than the others. And that he's arranged all of these according to his purpose, which we learned at the very end of the book, he's writing that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. So all of the things that he does in ordering his material is for that purpose. And we studied the way he chose to describe Christ's early ministry, what took place the very day John the Baptist introduced him as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world and to usher people to begin following him, Jesus, instead of himself, John the Baptist. And we studied that week at least three different lines, the three different statements that John gives us as Christ's first word. The first one was, what are you seeking? And that came in response to at least Andrew and one other person following Jesus after John said, go, there he is. I've been talking about him forever. Now he's here. You go follow him, not me. And Jesus asked, what are you looking for? What is it that you want? And then the second statement was, come and you will see. Because Andrew said, where are you staying? It's going to take longer than we want to stand out here in the sun for me to answer the question you asked me, what am I looking for? I'm looking for all sorts of things. In fact, I might not even know what I'm looking for. But then he says, come and see. And then at the end, we talked about how he met Simon because Andrew found Simon and brought him to Jesus. We learned his name was Peter because that's what Jesus says. Your name is Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter. And we learned how Jesus changed his name, so to say. We talked about others in the Bible where that had happened. And what we left with that week was this idea that perhaps God is more interested in changing us than blessing us. We talked about Jacob in the Old Testament and how he wanted a blessing as he wrestled with the angel all night while his brother is getting closer and closer and he thinks that might be the end of him. And at the crack of dawn, it seemed, instead of blessing Jacob, he asked him his name. What is your name? We'll get to that later in the end of this passage because they almost match up. But he blessed him there after he changed him, changed his name. So that was the thought that we left off last episode of our series almost a month ago. Well, we pick up today 
and verse 43. Let me read that passage for you all the way to the end of chapter 1. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father in heaven, with our Bibles open, we ask that you assist us, help us, put us in the place we need to be and able to listen and to learn, to learn from your word written by your disciple John, who saw you with his own eyes, heard you with his own ears, touched you with his own hands. Lord, may this come alive to us, and may we learn of you and know you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, let's organize what we just read around two words. And the two words are see and share. And the reason why I want to use those two, two words is because from the previous passage we studied almost a month ago... And the passage we add to it today as we wrap up chapter 1 have a lot to do with people seeing Jesus in a way they've never seen him before. And then in many of those cases, we see them turn around and share that information with someone else. So they're seeing things, they're learning, and then they're sharing that. They're telling other people. So you can think of it sort of like when you were a young person at school with show and tell. You probably have memories of that. Maybe that was something you were excited about. You couldn't wait to get to school and tell everybody about what you were so interested in. But then maybe you're like me. The thought of what you had in your backpack was was good enough for you. But you didn't think you wanted to tell anybody else about it. Because that was a frightful thing to stand in front of a room while they stare at you. That was me when I was little. Hated public speaking. Would rather take a beating, a root canal. In fact, even though I didn't know what it was like then, I bet I'd trade my kidney stone experience for some of those first times I spoke in front of people. So the idea of sharing what we know with Jesus is different for each of us. The way we share about Jesus is different for each of us. The way we share it with someone else, because they are different than the rest of us, our approach is different. But today, those, those are our ideas, seeing and sharing, or learning and telling. And it's all wrapped around that invitation Jesus gave Andrew at the beginning to come and see. I will show you. 
And we learned then, and it's the same now, that seeing is understanding. What is meant by that? Not just see something or see what the inside of Jesus' house looked like that afternoon, but to understand things about him. And we only get that through his word. Either it's Jesus speaking in person to Andrew or we reading this story later. But the Lord speaks through his word. We see it in our mind. We understand it. So Christ's invitation to come and see was an invitation for Andrew's eyes to be open to things he'd previously not understood. The very next thing we see him doing is running to tell his brother. And what he says is we have seen or found the Messiah. So let's look at our text. And as always, when we study the Bible, we're trying to understand it first. If we can understand it, then we'll know how to apply it. I've already given you a a sneak peek at the application today. We're going to learn how to see Jesus in this passage, and we're going to learn how to tell people what we see. And by the way, this is just a side note. That's a marvelous way to study your Bible in your devotions. To ask the Lord before you read, all right, show me who you are. And then give me an opportunity to tell others about you. So what am I seeing while I'm reading? And how can I tell someone else about it? It's a great application of some of the things we'll see right here. So let's look at verse 43. The next day, which is actually day four of the narrative we've been looking at so far, we're introduced to Philip. And uh, what we learn here is that no one actually went after Philip as far as what we read here. But we do know where he came from and why that's significant. Look at it. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. So we don't see anybody introducing Philip to Jesus. It's Jesus finding Philip and said to him, follow me, which uh, seems to have a, a lot of things packed into those two words, follow me. Even the more literal translation for this specific passage might be, travel with me, walk with me. Uh, We'll converse together, but you come with me. Maybe not necessarily what we see on the docks of the the fishing uh, landing where Jesus comes and begins to point out these men, hey, follow me, and they drop their nets and they go. You think, good grief, What's wrong with these people? I've never walked down to the pier and said, Hey, folks, follow me, and had anybody look at me other than that I'm crazy. Point is, Jesus had relationships with these men before the time he said, All right, time to make a decision. You're going to be my disciples. You'll have to abandon those nets. And because of what we are reading right here where he's meeting. See, the first words with Peter and and Jesus about his name change took place before the day they're there on the fishing docks. So when he says, follow me here, this is is the beginning of a relationship. So the next day, he decided to go to Galilee, found Philip, said, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, a city of Andrew and Peter. That's where Andrew and Peter were from. Whether or not they knew each other, we don't know. We're not told. But it seems as if that's a city that people would know about. And two people that we've already read about are already from there. So what happens next? Look at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael. So Philip, after he'd followed Jesus, is now telling 
others about what he's learned from Jesus. We're not given any of the story in between that. This is a very fast-paced record of what happened. So we'll have to ask them when we meet them in heaven what took place between verse 43 and verse 44 as far as Philip and Jesus. Well, whatever happened there, it was enough for Philip to go find Nathaniel. And what does he say to him? We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So there's, he learned that much in the time that they were together. But what about this guy named Nathaniel? Because he's somewhat odd in that he is not mentioned in the other three Gospels. This is the only place you're going to read about uh, Nathaniel. Now, there are a lot who believe that this is Bartholomew. That they're one and the same. Because we see Bartholomew in the other Gospels. And anytime we see him, he's always with Philip. So on the strength of that, people think this is probably uh, the same guy. And for those of you inquiring minds that just need to know. Okay, you're trying to sell me something here. How can a guy with two different names be the same guy? And there's a background to that. They, the, the name here, Bartholomew, will use his name, if this is him, from the other Gospels. And we still don't know. It's very likely. The word Bartholomew is actually a two-parted name. Bar, the first part, means son of. And Ptolemeu, the last part of Bartholomew, was his daddy. And a lot of people were known more so by their family name, like we are with our last names, than a first name. So someone introduced Bartholomew as Ptolemeo's boy, which may have been Nathaniel. There's other places in Scripture where we see this, where, say, if you went to the passage in Matthew where Simon is introduced as Simon Bar-Jonah. That's Peter, whose daddy was Jonah. That's the way this works. There's also uh, Bartimaeus. Timaeus, that's... that's, that's that's his son. And then Bartholomew the same. If this were for me, I would be Isaac Bar Lamar. Lamar's boy. And at the tabernacle, I went by Lamar's boy or preacher's boy more than I went by Isaac for a very long time. Except here, I really like it because I go by Michael's dad and David's dad and Olivia's dad and, and, and Benjamin's dad by those that are younger than me. But that's how this works. So this is very, very likely that that's who this is. That this is Nathaniel, son of Ptolemeu. Now what happens with this fellow? Back to the verse. Nathaniel is told by Philip, we have found him. Which is the same thing that Andrew told Simon or Peter. We found him. We've, which tells us that they had been looking for him to begin with. And now they think they have their man. So let's just say if we're putting ourselves in the position of Nathaniel and we have our friends say we have found him, maybe we ask who? Because he's descriptive here. The one that Moses in the law and also the, also the prophets have written about. This man has a background. He fits certain prophecies from Moses and the prophets. Now, he still might be thinking, suppose you're Nathaniel listening to him say this, okay, you've found the Messiah, I get that. Okay, who is he? Do I know him? 
Is he a stranger? Because immediately, look at the rest of the verse. There we find his name. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Which happens to be someone, perhaps, that people in the local area might have known. Now, I don't think that Nathaniel knew him, based on what Nathaniel says next. We have his famous reply. Nathaniel said to him, that's Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I don't think he knew Jesus or saying what he said would lump him in with everybody else that came from Nazareth who Nathaniel has just insulted. Perhaps. The idea was, (laughs) what good could come out of that place? Evidently, Nazareth according to the people and what they knew, was not a a notable city. In fact, I did a little bit of homework here. This might be talking, uh, say, about other towns around here. Any of you know where uh, Corinth is? What about Duncan? What about Lizard Lick? (laughs) Only because of that TV show, right? Did anybody know about Lizard Lick before there was a TV show about it? But if someone had said, hey, have you seen the stuff coming out of Washington? That they might actually nominate this guy from one of those places. You'd say, good grief, nothing. Those places are, are otherwise insignificant. Why would we expect that the prophecies that we've been hearing about for hundreds of years... It would come from a place of absolute no notoriety. That was his question. And maybe it's not a smart aleck question. Maybe it's just a careful question. Are you sure about that? Because in, in, in my mind and what I've read, I've, I've, I've got what I think I'm looking for. And you're telling me that it's coming from Nazareth. As if to say, uh, I don't think the story's supposed to go this way, Philip. This man's a careful, perhaps even skeptical person. So I think it best to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't think he is being uh, the smart aleck, I said, intentionally. Uh, In fact, I think he's going to be seen as quite the conscientious type uh, in the next few lines that we read. You be the judge of that. Uh, You've got your Bibles, your smart people. Read these things. See if this makes sense. There's nothing significant about the line there, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. So whether or not Nathaniel knew Jesus or Joseph, um, there's, nothing, there's nothing to see there. A Jesus was a very common name. We went through this before. A very uh, normal, lots of boys were named Jesus. And then Nazareth was a podunk town that no one really knew about. And then the son of Joseph was a carpenter, which is a very normal job. And then again, we remember that some folks have their idea about whether or not Joseph's really his father in the first place. That comes up later. So you wouldn't expect to see the Messiah in a line like that, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. But remember the claims from the first 18 verses. Do you remember that? Because 
the big gun has already been fired right at the beginning of the book of John. That this word was God and was with God. So Jesus is God. And then later in verse 14, this word became flesh. So God was going to become a human in order to relate to us from the inside out rather than the outside in. And then finally, he's doing this in verse 18 to show us the Father that we'd never know any other way. Remember those those claims that John made at the beginning of the book? So the claims are there. He's just giving us the evidence of it. And can men who otherwise don't know this man but come in contact with him, if they can be convinced that he is who he says he is? We've already got Andrew who's convinced. Now Peter's convinced. Philip is convinced. What about Nathaniel, who seems to be a skeptic? Does he buy this? John is calling these witnesses, each one at a time, to see whether enough or not this is believable. So how does Philip retort to such a statement? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? What does Philip say? He says, simply, come and see. Which is exactly what Jesus told Andrew. Well, why don't you come and see? See with your own eyes. Hear with your own ears. I'm not hiding anything. There's, there's no deception going on. No sleight of hand. It's all out in the open. You be the judge. And really, if evangelism is tied to this message, and that's how we're going to apply this, what are we reading and seeing in Scripture, and how can we share it or show it or tell it to others? Those three words might as well be the banner of evangelism, don't you think? Come and see. Because at the end of the day, there's, not, there's nothing to see here. We're not, come see me. Listen to me. I'll show you how to live. No, it's come and see Jesus. Come and see the scriptures. Even if it's something like this church. And sometimes in your evangelistic obedience, you feel like that's about all you've got. At certain times. Would you, would you at least come to church with me. And see what I do every Sunday. That seems to be an enigma to you. You don't understand. Why I get dressed up. And come to church. And spend that much time on a weekly basis. It, 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 it intrigues you. that Knowing that time is precious to everyone. And I spend that much. Well come and see what, I, what I'm doing. What I'm reading. What I'm hearing. Come and see. Why do we do Awana? Why do we do Upward? Why do we do some of these programs we call Outreach? To hopefully precipitate an opportunity to ask someone to come and see. The thing that gives us the hope of eternity, ultimately, to see Jesus. We have a good time doing all those things. We make relationships and all that's important because... Which is more powerful, someone asking you to come and see that you know very well, that you trust, that you've lived most of your life with, or somebody you've never seen ever before who says, come and see. So relationships only make it better. Well, that's what's going on here. And we know that Nathaniel actually said yes to this invitation because in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him. So Nathaniel's on his way to, with Philip, Go and see, or come and see. And Jesus says of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, what does that mean? 
If it wasn't puzzling enough to see Jesus turn around to the first guy who said he wanted to follow him and say, what do you want? Jesus is looking at this man coming and says, behold, an Israelite, that's a Hebrew, someone of Israeli descent, a son of Jacob. And he's saying an Israelite, a Hebrew, in whom there is no deceit. So basically, at the very least, Jesus is giving this man a compliment based on his personality. He's a straight shooter. And we've already caught a, a whiff of that earlier when he's saying, no, wait a minute, no, what, what good comes out of Nazareth? I, I don't know that this is adding up. So he's carefully thinking his way through it. And then when he's approaching Jesus, Jesus says, an Israelite in whom is no deceit. If you have a King James, the word is probably guile. I think RSV is guile. I think the rest of them pretty much have deceit. But a man who's a straight shooter, he's honest, he's careful with what he says, which you tell me, would that be the exception or the rule for the, uh, the common public? Are more people straight shooters with no deceit? Or are more people those who you have to really do some thinking and maybe get to know them better to know that what's coming out of their mouth is completely the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. I mean, we see things like that. Like, let me be honest with you. Which means what? That you haven't been up until now, but now you are because before you weren't. Or, you know what I've had on my heart? I don't know. Tell me what's on your heart. Or, you know, the, 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 the Baptist excuse to talk about somebody, right? You just say, bless their heart first. <laughs> and then you talk about them afterward, right? You know, so-and-so, bless their heart. Let me tell you what happened to them. Some of this stuff has to do with, to some extent, a measure of deceit or dishonesty in the way we carry ourselves, have conversations, the way we dress ourselves, what we drive, the way we, we act as if we make this amount or that amount. This is just the way people act. Jesus is pointing this guy out as being somewhat unentangled in that sort of thing. An Israelite in whom is no guile. Or deceit. Now, if we'll pay attention here, we'll see how Jesus deals with this man who might not be like most men, but anyway, he's a man and Jesus deals with him different than any other way. In fact, as we read further into John, you will see Jesus changing his, his approach to people just about with every person he talks to. If you have an evangelism book at home that tells you, to boil it all down to mechanics and memorized pitches. Go home and toss that out. It'll just disappoint you. Because no two people are alike. They're all going to need to be dealt with differently. We get to know them differently. We share Jesus differently. You've got to be human. You've got to be real. If this is going to make sense. And obviously Jesus is being real with him. And this really puts Nathaniel on guard because Nathaniel wants to know how this man he doesn't know seems to know him. You ever, does it ever make you nervous when somebody comes up and says, I've heard a lot about you. <laughs> and usually we'll say something like, well, most of it's not true. <laughs> Is that guile? Is that deceit? For someone, if someone had said, indeed, a Wake Chapel church member in whom is no deceit, 
usually, and this would probably pop out of me, you know, right off the bat. Oh, you're too kind. That's not me. That would probably raise the, the Geiger counter on deceit just a bit, right? Because in my head, I'd like to think I don't have deceit. But that's deceit. Well, what does Nathaniel do about this? Because Jesus has just paid him this compliment that he knows about him. And he doesn't know how he knows about it. So he says, how do you know me? And we don't know how he said it because you could, you need to see his face. But I always like to give the benefit of the doubt that he's intrigued. How is it that you know me? How do you know that I'm an Israelite in whom is no deceit? And really, if we went back to that story of Jacob wanting to be blessed, wrestling with the angel. And the angel, angel of the Lord, asked him, what is your name? And he has to give his name. And what does the name of Jacob mean? Deceit, right? But then his name was changed as the Lord worked all that out of him and gave him the name Israel. And all the children of Israel have been called Israelites since. What Jesus is actually saying here is, look there, we've got us an Israelite in whom is no Jacob. By a people group who seem to, tongue-in-cheek, be known for their scheming and their triangulating trying to get the, the upper hand, leverage somehow, very shrewd, very, very capable. And Jesus has looked right through this man and said, here's a man who's at least trying to be an Israelite with no Jacob left in him. And he looks at him and says, how in the world do you know me? That's what he says. And it actually fits what Jesus had said because others might have said, oh, you're too kind. No, that's not me. But he just says, How do you know me? So Jesus answers him, going a little further in verse 48. Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Again, wow. There's so much in between these lines we'd like to read because I'm, I'm pretty sure it took more for him be convinced that Jesus is who he said he was than just that one line before he brought you over here I saw you but somewhere packed away in that is this remarkable change where a skeptic's now convinced because that's about as good a confession as you can get rabbi or teacher you are son of god that's the first claim from the beginning of this book You are the king of Israel. There's the Messiah. That's in there as well. So he's acknowledging with exclamation points there in your translation likely. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What convinced him? We don't know. But it's obvious here that what we're witnessing is a conversation that we are very much on the outside of. Don't you love inside jokes when you're not on the inside of one? Well, this is like that. Because there's what he says following in 51. He said to him, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Almost sounds like a reference to Jacob's ladder. Maybe Nathaniel was reading that passage under the fig tree. Maybe that's why Jesus gave this remark of this Israelite in whom is no Jacob. We don't know. 
We're on the outside of this trying to figure it out. We can ask him when we meet them. But the point is, he's convinced, even though it sounds like Jacob's ladder. And maybe what Jesus is saying to him is, you won't need the ladder anymore, which is what that was all about, a connection between heaven and earth. Well, the ladder's here. The one who, that, that looks like the third claim, to show us the Father we don't know, a living, breathing ladder to heaven. And maybe this is what convinces Nathaniel. I'm talking to the, the Son of God. Well, in conclusion, what can we learn from this? Let's switch over from understanding to obeying. And in what ways can we see something here and share it with others if we're going to wrap what we learn around those two words? Well, if we backed up to verse 35, which is where we left off a month ago. So you're taking first the month and then this passage we've learned here at the end of the month. Between 35 and 51... There are at least three types of seeking going on, looking, okay? And embedded in that is a lot of sharing in between. So what we see in the first passage, this was a month ago, a seeking soul. And here's where you have followers of John the Baptist looking for something that they find in Jesus as John the Baptist makes the handoff. And we'll read later that Jesus actually says... Ask, knock, seek. What happens to people that ask? Well, they're answered. What happens to people that seek? They find. What happens to people who knock? The door's opened. Now, we learn later that Jesus is the one doing the seeking, but at the beginning stage, we feel like it's us doing the seeking, even though we're being drawn. And these men following John are being drawn toward Jesus. They're seeking an answer to the questions of life. They finally find them. So there are always seeking souls all over the planet at any given time. We don't know who they are, so we treat everybody that way. We don't know who the elect are, as Spurgeon says. They don't have yellow stripes down their back. So we don't try to check. We just tell everybody about Jesus. You'll be amazed that the more you tell people about Jesus, the more you'll find people are looking for him. But you've got seeking souls here. And then right about the time we go from that paragraph to the paragraph we studied this morning, uh, you see Jesus as a seeking Savior. He turns around and asks Andrew, what do you want? Why don't you come and see? And we're going to see this over and over again. We see it with, with Philip. We don't know that anybody brought Philip. Jesus is seeking Philip. What hope had the woman at the well if Jesus hadn't been seeking? So he starts the project, and then there are others that get involved. So you've got a seeking soul, a seeking Savior, and then this morning we see seeking saints. We see that actually in the previous passage and specifically this morning. Andrew brought Peter. Philip brought Nathaniel. John the Baptist had Andrew and Peter and others ready. You've got John who wrote this gospel, writing that you may believe. So we've got all these saints, and we call saints, that's what the Bible calls Christians. I've never been comfortable with that term, saint. You probably don't either, but that's what Paul writes to the saints at different churches. You're saved, you're saint, whether you feel like it or not. But we need seeking saints. Saints seeking others 
to make saints out of. And that's what we've got here with these, with Andrew and with Philip who brought Peter and Nathaniel. John started with, with uh, Andrew. No one brought Philip. Philip brings Nathaniel. People who had seen were sharing. So where do you fit in all this? I guess the good way to wrap this all up. Maybe we've got a seeker in here. Maybe they've been seeking since we started studying John. You've seen Jesus in a different way you've never seen before. These things are beginning to make sense. You're almost at the point where you begin to feel like you, you started the seeking process only to realize, no, you've been, you've been sought. You're now being asked the question, what is it that you're looking for? Maybe it's time to make the confession that Nathaniel made. You are the Son of God. You are the King of the Jews. You are the Savior of my life. You are my hope for heaven. You're my righteousness, my grace. Because I don't have any of those things. And that's what I've been looking for. Maybe the seeking Savior has had your number. Much longer than you've had his. It feels like. And then there's that seeking saint. Who are you saying the words, come and see to? That's, that, that's what we take home out of these doors. And maybe, I wrote this down because we're actually witnessing the way in which Jesus did his own personal witnessing. The question would be good to ask, would you like to be more like Jesus in the way that he shared the gospel? You'll find no better evangelist than the man at the well with the woman. Or the man healing the sick. Or the man putting himself in a situation that would make him ceremonial unclean. So he couldn't go to the temple. You don't touch her. You can't touch her. If you touch her, you won't be clean. The ways in which he goes about meeting people where they are. I think our idea of Jesus is going to be totally reshaped as we move through these stories. But if you would like to answer that question with a yes, I would like to be more like Jesus and the way he witnesses, then watch him. Watch how he does it. Learn from him. Study those passages. Listen to the words he uses and how he uses them. We notice he's very, very careful with this skeptic who was very careful with Jesus. Jesus doesn't mind questions. We think they might be rude. He doesn't. Now, there are things that Jesus doesn't have time for. Someone who likes to telegraph how righteous and awesome they are, like the Pharisees. People trying to trap him in his words. He never gave them what they wanted. He actually tied them up tighter than they were when they got in. But watch him. Read about him. Ask him to tell you. How should I tell that person about you? I'm convinced he'll tell you. Because he wants them to know. So why would he hold out on you in your effectiveness in doing that? He wouldn't. So what do we do today? What do we take home? A prayer request. Jesus, make us a seeking saint and make us more like a seeking Savior so that seeking souls can find what you've given me and with that said let's us bow in prayer father in heaven 
We thank you for this last Sunday of the year. We thank you for these passages of Scripture and John's Gospel as he calls witnesses who were convinced that you are the Son of God so that we may be convinced of the same. Lord, give us what we need in order to be seekers. Later you'll call these fishermen, not of fish but of men. Lord, I confess openly that that's one place I often feel like quite a failure. I think the same would be true for many in this room. Lord, give us what you've got so we can give that to others. Make us your students. May we be Jesus to those who've not yet met you. So that when it's time to make an introduction like John the Baptist, the transfer is easy. We thank you so much for this, for your word, for its power. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for bringing us today, Lord, to uh, praise your holy name. And, Father, as uh, tens of thousands of churches across this land have uh, opened their doors today, and millions upon millions of people have gathered today to uh, proclaim that uh, Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, singing and listening to the good word preached. Father, help us, Lord, and instill in us, convict us, Lord, to go about our days telling others about our King Jesus. And uh, be with us and guide us, Lord, as we're doing so. Fill us full of wisdom and confidence and kindness to others, Lord, telling them about the good news. And we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.